0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Quantum Nurse Freedom International live stream. And thank you so much for what, everything that you guys are doing because you're, you know, no matter what, I know, I'm sure most of you are doing something significant in your life, not just for your life, but for other people, especially nowadays. And I want to remind everyone that um, this podcast and every live stream that I will do with by myself or with a group, with my team, where we will upload it in a quantum nurse beat shoot. And of course, all the other podcasters will upload it in the different platforms as well. So the quantum nurse beat shoot and the quantum nurse um, uh, rumble, and also at earth heroes connected to Sasha Stone's uh, TV. And sadly, I don't have right now, I don't have any more of the YouTube. But that's a long story, and that's common nowadays. But nevertheless, we continue. Okay, and I am so excited and happy because my guest today is someone who is not just a like. Let's just say that he he not just doing his life for himself, but really expanding his using all his talents and skills. You know that. He was born with, because I think he was born with this. Because when you want to care for other people, he's doing it beyond what he would have just settled down for himself and let go of all the other concerns for others. And we have Dr. Mark McLaughlin. And thank you, Dr. McLaughlin, for being here.
1: Thank you, Grace. It's a pleasure and to be here. So
0: if you Google him, he's got lots of information. <laughs> he's got He's a famous one, okay? So, and I'm happy that he called. We both are from Princeton, New Jersey. We have a common um, moment of entanglement at uh, Princeton Hospital, especially for me, the old hospital, which I worked for 20 years, and then it kind of moved on and focused on holistic nursing. Then we went back again to gerontology, and so now, I just combine both my holistic nursing and then my uh, traditional nursing. So Dr. McLaughlin is a practicing board certified neurosurgeon and he's also a national media commentator and author of the book, Cognitive Dominance, A Brain Surgeon's Quest to Outthink Fear. And he is also an acclaimed keynote speaker. As I was telling you, he. You can. He has a lot of video interviews as well as audio interviews, so don't hesitate to explore and listen more to the messages that he's been sharing to the public. And he is the founder of the Princeton Brain and Spine Care, where he practices surgery focusing on trigeminal neuralgia and cervical spine surgery. He's also a thought leader in performance enhancement and physician-hospital relations. And one of the best things that I like with him as I find as I keep knowing who Dr. McLaughlin is, other than being at the hospital, is that he he also organized and co-founded and funded the Trenton Youth Wrestling. That's a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing inner city boys and girls with skills gained through wrestling and working with mentors. So as you see, um He's one of a kind of a doctor. And as some of us will have like a like a phobia to some doctors who may think, oh, they're just thinking all for themselves. That's different for Dr. McLaughlin. Okay. And so thank you again. And yes, please. resonates to you, that what you're hearing, please share this. And don't hesitate. If you have other questions, reach out to me or just pass them. I will pass the message or question in the future to Dr. McLaughlin. So thank you.
1: Great to be here, Grace. Thank you so much. I I remember your voice uh, in the ICU. It reminds me of being up there back in the old Princeton Hospital. And um it's it's funny I was looking at your website and all that you've done and we have the common thread of having multiple interests. You know, I love I love being a doctor, but I also love being a writer. I love being a wrestling coach and it just it's neat how they all form this amalgam of ourselves which is it's more than just one thing which is which is great. So I'm excited to talk with you today.
0: Yeah, I me me too, especially when Um, I was listening to you. I wasn't even looking at your face, but but that voice, you know, there's really something to speak about that light, sound energy, that frequency that Tesla has taught us to really pay attention. So with that, it was like bringing back the memory that, oh, I think I know him. Oh, I think I've I've had a, a patient of his so thanks again that's beautiful now so since i remembered that moment i wanted to share with you maybe you know it already okay but this is just my observation with amongst my circle of peers in nursing while i was still working in the hospital okay neurosurgeons we usually don't like neurosurgeons. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> because most, and it's not that we like you, okay? But it's like in general, in general. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, a neurosurgeon is coming. We're like, now who is that neurosurgeon we have to ask, okay? <laughs> and we there's, there's like that fear, that fear, that anxiety. Then we oh. know. neurosurgeon is coming our
1: reputation precedes us our (laughs) reputation precedes us
0: right and there's always that apprehension that oh they want everything yesterday so (laughs) (laughs) so when we know the surgeon who's coming it's kind of neat when you we know you because we sort of have developed that memory of your ways your processes or your your protocol and then yeah. so if you know you're going to the procedure we get things ready yes. and you know we don't have to yell that scream at and yep and i could understand why everything seemed to uh, like to be yesterday because you have a very delicate responsibility and I, that's an opportunity that you know like a timing is everything and if we miss that timing if we miss that key vital signs then everything is like boom it it, it leads into to chaos
1: that's right I, I always I, say to my I, I always say to my nurses you know you can't forget anything in neurosurgery you know one little thing could be the difference between life and death and you need to hold yourself to that standard that you're just not going to forget something it's got to be all there and i think that our older my, my predecessors, certainly, um, they instilled that in me. But I think that as years have gone by, we've realized that, you know, the authoritarian doctor doesn't work and the the team, the team player doctor is the way to go. And so I think that we still have a very high, you know, standard of, of uh, detail and, um, uh, as you say, you know timing is really important but i think we've learned and my my colleagues have learned that we we need to be part of the team and we need to you know be good leaders and be good teachers so that people you know don't don't have that feeling that apprehension that you had years ago when a neurosurgeon was coming to the room <laughs>
0: yeah and it's it's true even now and I, I I remember again, having conversations with young interns, residents. I said, listen, if you just be very kind and then you're working with nurses and especially if they're senior nurses, let me tell you, just be very kind, be kind because they'll teach you everything. They'll help you with everything. You right. can ask for anything and they'll give it to you. Yeah, so, and, but you're different. As I said, you're different, you know, um, well, thank you. So, I wanted to ask you: there are so many emotions, and yet, you your book talked about fear. What is in in fear that you decided to dedicate or like focus this book on?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, as I uh, I've always wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a young boy. My grandfather was a surgeon. My uncles were surgeons, and so I was around medicine ever since a little kid, and um, I used to carry my grandfather's black bag on his house calls, so I, I knew what it was like to be a doctor, and when I started to actually go to medical school and actually you know try and decide what my career would be, um, I, I kind of like latched on to neurosurgery because it was a lot like sports. It was a lot like wrestling to me. And I was a wrestler in high school and college, and it just had the same intensity and the same um, uh, requirement for high levels of energy. And um, so it was it was the intensity and the intimacy and the the grueling nature of it that got me excited about it. But as I started to learn the skills that I needed to um, to be a surgeon and to be a neurosurgeon, I started realizing. I was really scared a lot. I was worried that I was going to hurt somebody. I cared so much about patients that I was afraid I was going to injure them if I didn't do everything right, if I didn't know everything. I didn't want to let them down. And it became um, a hindrance to really learning and to being the best surgeon that I could be. And so I, I knew that along the way, I was going to have to figure out a way to, to uh, cope with my fear um, and, 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 do, and do a great job. Um, and so, you know, fear is every, a lot of people say, well, I don't have fear, you know, I might be anxious, or I might be worried, or I might be apprehensive. Those are all lower level fear states, really. If you can, you know, we, and I do this in the book, I talk about fear, and there's a spectrum a, or a gradient of fear. Which you know on the on the highest level of fear is is going to be, you know, being mortified or terrified or frozen, and then maybe in the middle somewhere it's fear or or uh, concern, and then down lower it might be anxiety. But all of those words are are some level of fear, and what I've realized along the way is that it gets in the way of your performance. It's it's a natural uh, reaction that your brain has that you need to figure a way to outthink so that you can function effectively and not just in neurosurgery to function effectively as a parent or as a son or as a teacher or as a father. You need to figure out a way to dismantle uh, that fear and reduce it because the more you reduce it, the more effective you're going to be.
0: No. Thank you for that introduction. Okay. And but I wanted to ask you, what how come others seem to be more fearful than, than the rest? Like, you know, um, in, in even simple situations, and of course, much more nowadays. So, how, in, in, in neuroscience, what's going on with the brain chemistry when one becomes more fearful?
1: Sure. So fear, particularly on a biological neurochemical basis, um, can help us escape from dangerous situations. And that's really what it was programmed in our brain to do years ago. tooth tiger jumps into the campfire ring and you are there and you have to def- defend yourself. Right. So that was, you know, your body's um, fight or flight mechanism that delivered high doses of 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 endogenous materials that would make you see clearer to your muscles to be stronger your heart to pump faster your ability to jump and and defend yourself in a way that would help you you know fight this this mortal threat that was coming on but as we've evolved um, those kinds of threats are are few and far between and And that same chemical reaction happens in your body whenever you feel any type of a threat, whether it's a, you know, a a verbal threat or it's a threat of embarrassment or a threat of losing face or whatever. It's the same chemicals that run through your body. And those chemicals can really get in the way of thinking clearly and choosing appropriate and prudent actions. And so that's what I call cognitive dominance. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty heady term, cognitive dominance. And many people feel it, they, they hear it, and they think it has this sort of controlling um, concept of controlling others. But really, it's not. It's defined as uh, enhanced situational awareness that facilitates rapid and accurate decision making under stressful conditions with limited decision making time. So really what it is is thinking on your feet with limited information and making the best choice. Sometimes the the best choice is the best worst choice. Sometimes we're faced with two terrible decisions, two two terrible things we need to choose from, and we got to pick the best, the best worst option. But many times it's not that. It's the it's a wrong or a lesser option and it's a it's a more positive uh, service-oriented option that we can sometimes be blinded by with with fear. So that's the whole goal of the book is to talk about how can we create a system that can help us um, cope with dismantle even leverage or harness fear into thinking in a smarter way. And that's what my book is about. It's about taking situations and analyzing them, breaking them down into their elements, and then Reordering them in a way that fits with our value system. So I talk about breaking events down into objective and subjective components, uh, meaning what are the what are the facts of this experience that I'm having? What what do I know? Absolutely. And then, what are things that um, are concerning to me as in my value system? And so, I t- kind of liken it to talking to about a patient. So you have a patient; they have vital signs, right? They have a blood pressure, they have a pulse, they have a respiratory rate. These kinds of things are indisputable. We could we could evaluate them all over the world, anywhere, and that would be the same for everyone. So those are the objective facts about something. And then there are this subjective experiences of this person experiencing, let's say, severe pain, and they want to know what the meaning of that pain is. They want to know why they have pain. They don't know what's going on. And they're experiencing a tremendous amount of fear related to that. And if we can break those two components down in situations, we can think more clearly about how we how we move forward.
0: Oh, fantastic. What was coming in my imagination is, is like, yeah, as you know, you're a surgeon, but other people can do the same. But it's like looking at first at that feeling of that emotion of fear in a macro level, and you are encouraging people to go. You know, as I said, analyze and divide it, dissect it, and so from the macro, you get goes going to the micro situation. So, are you saying that um, the more information that one has about certain things that one is fearful of, that they're better equipped to handle or manage that fear?
1: Absolutely, the more information you have. And the more tools that you have to to process that information, the less fear you're going to have. And so um, it's important to know, know what your values are. One of the things that I talk about in the book is you really need to sit down and on a piece of paper write down what are the values that I align with? Am I a person Uh, of service? Am I a person of integrity? Am I a trustworthy person? Am I a loyal person? What are the things that you align with yourself most? And that's what I call the y-axis of your life. The y-axis is really traveling up and down the meaning of your life, which is more of like a more of a right brain kind of function. So the right brain is the bigger picture, kind of sees the whole maybe not the parts as well. It's your gut and your intuition. Um, and that's an important, very important part of uh, analyzing your problems. And then there's the x-axis. So the x-axis is the objective, finite, definable aspects of whatever event you're thrown. So you know, take a step back. You know, fear, What what is fear? I mean, fear is the anticipation of an event in the future that if it takes place, you will feel something you don't want to feel. That's really how I define fear. And what that means is, is it's, it's not in the present moment. It's in the future. And, um, you know, I love the poem Rudyard Kipling's, if, you know, if you can treat triumph and disaster If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, you know, triumph and disaster are they're not in the present moment. They're in the future or the past, and they prevent you from functioning effectively in the present. So thinking about those kinds of things, knowing that that's what fear is. Understand that you're best going to function if you're functioning in the present moment and you've minimized your fear. That's what's going to give you your best performance, almost always. Yes, you need to be prepared. Yes, you need to have systems in place. Yes, you need to know what your values are. But once you've done your homework, you look that problem straight in the eye and say, I'm ready to take you on. And this is the way it's going to be. It's
0: kind of like what you're saying is, uh, what I'm remembering is that I always say, what's in your hand? So it's like, you know, so don't be looking for something that's not right in your hand or right in your face. Because that's when people keep, you know, looking for things. And then they everything gets like, yeah, as you said, being anxious and being scared of something that hasn't happened. Now, if it hasn't happened, now sometimes, how do we, re- what would be the good response when, um Others would say, well, that's just how I am, because that's how also my family is. That's how my uncle, my parents, you know, like they were fearful.
1: Sure, sure. That's a great question. And what I would say is to that person is that's how you're defining yourself today. But that's not a fixed. That's not a fixed idea. You I have a great teacher who taught me this, um, and, and the, the, the lesson is this. You are the author of the dictionary that you carry around with. So in other words, the words that you use, the words that you, sh- you share with others, the words that you use to frame events are going to define you. And if you can think of other words that might be less limiting, you will be less limited. So to someone who would say, well, that's just the way I am, I would say, well, that's just the way you are now. But that doesn't mean that's the way you need to be in the future. And how is that working for you? Uh, Wouldn't you like to live a life where you didn't have as much worry, didn't have as much fear? I mean, is it serving you? It's not, it's not serving you. So, you know, there's this exercise that, that, um, you can, you can perform on yourself. Think about it like a magical lightning bolt. Um, and that magical lightning bolt strikes you and you can't think of the future or the past. It only allows you to live in the present moment, only the present moment. Think about that for a moment. Would you have any fear? Of course not. You'd have no fear. You'd just be in the present moment. So, the more we can get ourselves to live in that present moment, the more effective, powerful, potent we're going to be.
0: And I remember hearing one of the, you know, a number of your videos or interviews. You mentioned that one of the tools that you use for yourself. Because you know you 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 have this uh, you, you're busy and you have this serious responsibility uh, not just in the not just in the operating table but also past the operating table you that you practice meditation correct
1: I do yes
0: right so in the meditation how. What happens in the meditation in terms of your pineal gland?
1: Well, I'm not aware of any uh, functional MRI studies that la- focus on the f- functional MRI scan of of the pineal gland, but I but I am familiar with many studies that have proven through functional MRI scans that your neural connectivity in something called the default mode network, which is the network of brain cells that kind of allows you to be introspective, that kind of allows you to kind of feel your conscience and your being, those cells can be strengthened with meditation. And what we see on anatomical studies is that there's even a thickening of the cortical margin of the brain margin where it actually becomes more enlarged with uh, meditation and longtime meditators. So for me, meditation is really a form of self-kindness. Um, it's a deposit in my emotional bank account. It's something that steadies me. Uh, it sets the tone for my day. It allows me to recharge the physical energy that I need to uh, during the long grueling day sometimes i can just sneak away for 5 minutes and meditate between surgeries and it'll give me it'll give me that energy that i need to to get back in get back in the game and get started and uh i've found it's been a tremendous it's uh, a, a tremendous help for me in in being more effective and and sharing it with others too um it 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 definitely i found decreases my level of anxiety um, and, uh, and and stress.
0: I'm glad you said that. So it's like your daily practice because that was what I was going to ask you is more is that what would be the best advice for someone who has that problem of being fearful all the time? And especially now that like I was in New York yesterday and there's always a long line of people doing um, the testing. There's so many COVID testing parts and long, 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 long line. And so, and (coughs) what would be a good daily practice so that someone could not be overcome with this fear?
1: Sure. So as far as meditation goes, um, it's a skill that you need to learn, just like learn how to play tennis or ping pong or anything else. I, I think that... Getting um, some resources, uh, and there are plenty on the internet uh, to, to do that, is a good, is a good start. Um, I found the app 10% Happier uh, to be an excellent app for, um, for meditation, uh, and you can actually uh, you can try it for a month, a free trial. I share it with a lot of my friends. I find it easy because you can just pop on they have 1 minute, 5 minute, 10 minute meditations. There's some really good content on it. And so that's one good app. There's another one called Waking Up, uh, Sam Harris's app, which is excellent. Thrive has a good meditation app as well. But the one I've found most useful for me is The 10% Happier. Uh, and Dan Harris wrote a book called 10% Happier, which I'd highly recommend. It's a it's a nice uh, straightforward, um, how to meditate, particularly for people who have never done it before. I think the subtitle is meditation for fidgety skeptics, Mm -hmm. which, uh, and so Dan does a great job in, in talking about his skepticism and entering meditation and why, uh, you know, his thinking changed. And so that would be an excellent one. Uh, to try. But it's something that um, it, it, you can, you can develop, it's like a muscle, and you need to develop it. I find it's really important to have a morning routine. And, you know, even maybe 10 years ago, I didn't have a morning routine. But as I began to try and become more effective, more a better teacher, a better doctor, a better father a better husband, I found that I had to get uh, very systematic with getting myself better. Otherwise, you know, we have our minds have a tendency to veer off or get a little bit lazy or, you know, not, not improve ourselves. I found like having the discipline of a morning routine, which I spend with a few minutes of meditation every morning, I read some stoic literature. I'm, I'm a big fan of the daily stoic Ryan Holiday's book, which is outstanding. Um, and then, you know, I will read and I spend a, probably about an hour in the morning reading to just um, really put information in and kind of, you know, pay myself first so that mm-hmm. I can go to work and, and feel like I've already gotten something in me. I usually share that knowledge with whoever I'm working with at work because if you don't share what you've learned with others verbally, physically, written, whatever, however you can do it, it doesn't stick. So I do that. And um, I also do a little bit of journaling, which is something new. I just started this year, which has helped me a lot with just kind of reiterating lessons that I've learned.
0: And so with all this this routine of yours, do you still have any moment that you are fearful?
1: Of course, absolutely. Um, It's a constant battle to try and stay in the present moment. Um, you know, I used to have this method of actually, I used to actually think that the, that the fear was a good thing in some respects. It kind of got me on my game. And some people have argued that. And I used to think that too. I used to believe that, but I've realized that, you know, again, picking the words that you think about, um, I think prudence is a much better word to get prepared for things, to be prudent, to know all the details that you need to before you do a surgery and yet not be worried about that surgery. I found to be more effective, but it can creep in. It absolutely can creep in. And that's why you need these methods to, um, to bring out the best you. So I tell this uh, story in my book and I tell it to my young wrestlers. You know, I really believe that, um, that, everything we need is within us here and i think that i've listened to some of your podcasts and the way you speak and i think you believe that too grace it's inside us we just need to bring it out like michelangelo said you know release the angel from the marble and um there are there are aids that help us release our angel and one of the aids that has been a, a huge help for me. Has been poetry, as I shared with you earlier, and so I tell this story to my wrestlers about how I used to think that poetry inspired me, and my father used to give me a number of poems, and I would read them and 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 sometimes memorize stanzas, and it was it was very what I said it's inspiring to me, and um, you know one one event that was a really pivotal event in my in my uh, life about five years ago, which I, which I write about is that I was getting ready to do a surgery. It was actually, it was in the new Princeton hospital, but it was a surgery that um, was a difficult surgery. Uh, It was the end of a long week. Uh, I was tired. I had already done six operations that week. I had, um, had, the surgery got moved to an afternoon start, which wasn't ideal because as you know, you know you get shift changes and things like that which can you know throw off the details of things and um as i was getting ready to do this surgery it was a, it was a difficult operation a patient had a tumor on the back of their head right near a very big vein and um, it wasn't something that i regularly do i had done the many times in the past but usually my partner does this type of a operation but he was out of town so i had to do this surgery that I had done many times before but not done recently and I was getting ready to go in and I had some of that fear creeping in you know and then I got my 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 phone rang and I got a it was a call from my father's physician who told me that he had just diagnosed my father with leukemia and that he uh, was not doing well and his prognosis was very poor so I'm sitting there, getting ready to go in to do a hard operation at the end of a long week, exhausted at a bad time, and now I've got this uh, terrible burden on me. And I immediately thought in my head, "Oh my gosh, I I need to cancel this surgery. There's there's no way I can do this surgery in this state of mind." So, I I knew I had to go in and talk to the patient. Um, so I walked in the hospital and as I was walking down the hallway to get to the holding area before the surgery. And I was planning on telling him that I was going to cancel it. I could see pretty far down the hallway. I could see that he was there with his wife and his three children at their saw at his side. And I started really thinking about this. Oh man, this is going to be really hard to tell him this. And I, I started, you know, just trying to get myself together. And as I was, Doing that, I these stanzas in this Rudyard Kipling's poem came to my mind. The stanzas from the poem that my father had given me a long time ago. And it was, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve their turn long after they are gone. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. And as I heard those words, and I walked into this gentleman's room, I reached out and shook his hand. And I said, I'm not going to cancel this operation. I'm going to dedicate this operation to my father. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to quit. I'm going to make this my finest hour. And I shook his hand and I took him back to the operating room and did a four hour operation did it perfectly got him back to the recovery room safely got the tumor out of his head and brought him back to his family and um i realized over the years that the poetry didn't inspire me what really happened was the poetry made me less frightened Mm. and when i became less frightened i could love more and when i loved more When I loved my father more, when I loved what I did more, when I loved my patient more, I was able to do exactly what I needed to do on that day at that time. And so many people say the opposite of love is hate. It's not hate. And some people say the opposite of love is indifference. It's not indifference. The opposite of love is fear. And if we can reduce our fear and get rid of it, love takes care of itself.
0: Well, it's a beautiful, beautiful poetry, beautiful message. And let me start with the fear. In the indigenous medicine, they always say that there, there's only one illness. It's fear. So, And everything else that's underlying is fear. And so I never forgot that. So I said, oh, that's why. And of course, the solution is always hope, so and or, or love. But anyway, there's only one illness. It's fear, because if you can get if you can manage your fear, then you'll be able to be responsive more to any treatment. So that's for the from the indigenous point of view. Then when you mention about the, I love poetry too. Remember here at Princeton, sometimes I am at the poetry trail. Yeah,
1: up I love on the hill. I walk the poetry trail all the time, Grace. I walk my dog there with Julie and I walk our dog there. We probably saw you there.
0: Yeah. And I would, I would, uh, when I have really time, I would, the, many of them resonate to me. I would read it with all my heart because no one is there. And then there was one, in fact, there are two, two poems then that are also songs. And I will sing that too.
1: <laughs> That's wonderful. That's anyway, wonderful.
0: Uh, then, so when I was listening to you and yes, you in, for you, you said um, it made you less fearful and more loving. How, what I hear from when you share that to me right now is that when you also said that words are powerful, so words are frequencies and those frequencies when we use that, that literally just like a, that's a scalar wave frequency with light and sound right away. So it's good that you shared that to people that what I'm hearing again is that there are there are tools there, it's available in the internet much more than many years ago. So it's up to us to really like, choose which resonate to respond to that energy that is attracting us. So that's what, because if you dig again, if I hear again those po- the poetry, the poem that you said, those words are beautiful words with frequencies. And that's the problem lately, of course, lately, we both know that the news media, everything is saying the same thing all over again and again and again. And for me, that's, again, giving frequencies that will make people, to some people, okay? But I know many people like me (laughs) who are not really fearful. Sure, I am cautious. I have that prudence, but not fearful. So I try to turn off my, I don't listen to a lot of main media. So with that, I wanted to, Uh, ask your best advice when it comes to like what is happening now with words, words, words. And if people pay attention, they're saying the same words over and over and over again.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, A couple of comments and then maybe I'd I'd like to have you clarify your question a little bit. So first of all, I totally agree with you that, um, well, the thing about poetry is it's, 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 it's the rhythm. That that you fall in love with, and 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 the vocabulary is so powerful and rich. And uh, what we're what we're losing in text messages and in emails is intonation. Uh, is uh, is that same uh, musicality of 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 language and of of written word, which is so important as, to to us as humans. Um, And you know, I've I've been fortunate enough now that I'm spending my Fridays um, with friends. I I I finally got to the point in my career. I've been a neurosurgeon now, um, out of my residency, 21 years, and I finally told my partners. I said, "You know what? I love what I do. I want to be a doctor for as long as I can be a doctor, but I want to have Fridays to read and to think and to." do all the things that i haven't been able to do for for 20 years cuz neurosurgery takes a lot of time and so i finally said i want to do this and i've spent the last few months having lunch with friends old friends new friends and it's it's wonderful to have the conversation face to face and um you know it's been wonderful and and so unfortunately with the pandemic obviously that's that, that's been uh a problem for many people and certainly for the first year and a half with uh, isolation and everything uh even just the 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 you know the uh, uh video video chatting is is it's something but it's not the same as being in person so i'm a huge advocate for in-person meetings and in person breaking bread with people in person yeah. i think that's a great um way to connect with people i think we're social we're, we're social mm-hmm. beings and so i'm a big advocate of that but i think you were saying um what can we do in this day and age in terms of you know the rhetoric that's going on the anger that's going on the um the such uh, diametrically opposed opinions a couple of things are my are my thoughts i love the Abe Lincoln quote: um, "I do not like that man. I must get to know him better." And I think that's really, really important for us now, more than ever, to be asking questions, lots of questions, to people who who disagree with us, in a in a in a in a, in a truly curious and loving manner, um, because that's the only way we're going to keep. Uh, together is if we tr- do our very best to understand others' perspectives and come to some kind of common ground. And by just divorcing ourselves from people because we disagree with their opinion is a, is a really um, is, a I think, a really uh, short-sighted uh, tactic um, and going to lead to more problems. I heard recently, I heard uh, I had a um, one of my friends say that they're never going to go to Texas because they don't want to spend a dollar in Texas because of the abortion laws that they that they passed there. And interestingly, in The New York Times, you know, the, the views of most Texans are pretty much the same as the rest of the United States. And um, so I just again, I, I thought that that was that that approach to say i'm never going to go to texas because they don't have this this ideal that i have and i know that this is very very emotionally charged ground i just that's not that's that doesn't work for me what works for me is we need to talk to texas more than ever now and we need to really kind of get get into alignment and and do it from a from a true uh perspective of curiosity So my thoughts are, you know, we need to be talking. We need to be connecting. Um, We need to remember that our words are very powerful and they define who we are. And there's a big difference between saying I'm a prudent person and I'm a warrior. And someone might say, oh, that's just semantics. Well, semantics are the meaning of life. I mean, semantics are, are the meaning of words and the meaning of words is the meaning of life. And it's not a trivial thing. It's an important thing to understand that when you say I'm a prudent person, what you're saying is you're giving yourself credit for being meticulous. You're being, giving yourself credit for thinking of everything that needs to be thought of. And you are not setting yourself up for a decreased performance because you're saying I'm a warrior, which doesn't help you perform in any way, shape or form.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. And um, when you were talking about um, more about the words, is and oh, and one, one, that one, one, in addition to what you said, in, you know, uh, in what would help people, is it's always good to remember what you said that meeting in person, that meeting in person, because even for me, I, this last two years, it opened up a whole beautiful, fantastic, exponential growth of relationship of people from around the world. But at the same time, what I did is keep myself grounded. So I I, I made sure I belong to groups that we can meet in person. So in, in fact, luckily three weeks ago, when when I went to meet in a, one of the restaurant bars, one of the nurses who <laughs> was there from from the hospital i said hey you're here and so in, in and yeah, i was a little surprised that i saw her there but i guess i i'm not surprised i should not be surprised because more and more nurses are speaking up to make their stand and so she was there and we shared some experiences so meeting in person nothing like meeting in person and when you said again, um yeah, to be p- fearful and not to be fearful. Because, like, in New York, when um, I was I was uh, on the phone, so I pulled my mask down and in a store, and the lady was just like scared, and she said, "Put your mask on." But I sometimes they can't understand well when I, when you don't pull the mask and speak up. So I just kind of gently said to the lady after I put my mask on, did my thing, and I said. um don't be fearful. Then she said, why not? So I said, because the more you get fearful, then the more that your immune system will be compromised. And that's one thing that you don't want, right? Then I, of course, she just looked at me. But once I said, I'm a nurse, so I know, okay? <laughs> and then she said, okay. So, but it's, when I just try to understand them also. as you emphasize that learning getting to know the other person would be good because knowing where they're coming from and that would be good as well and when i ask you about that um you know that your practice your pineal gland because we again maybe you if you have any opinion about those um Articles and um, comments that because of the nano na- nanotechnology on the inoculations that it could literally hurt also the pineal gland and so if you have any uh, thought on nanotechnology and how it will affect the brain please share your thought.
1: Well, Grace, two things. One, I love these. I love these. Um... Uh, uh, these meetings because you always learn something. And I love the concept of the indigenous medicine, believing that fear is the only illness. And I would wholeheartedly agree with you that, that fear can affect your immune system. Um, And it's, it's detrimental to your immune system. I think, and I've listened to uh, some of the podcasts that you've had, and I respectfully disagree with some of the, the vaccination um, uh, anti-vaccination uh, uh, people that have spoken uh, out against it. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in vaccination and um, I, I believe that the vaccinations have reduced the mortality from this coronavirus dramatically. Um, and I, I, you know, I read the, I read the literature on that very, very carefully and, and I do believe that the vaccinations are safe and that the boosters are safe and that they've made a huge impact in the mortality, uh, from COVID-19. And I, and I speak not only as a scientist, but as a person who's lost their mom to COVID-19, um, in the early pandemic days. And, um, so that is an area that I would welcome another discussion on someday, um, but that is I stand firmly in the belief that the vaccinations are helpful and they are making a huge impact in saving lives and that they the risks of the vaccines are very, very small. And that's my position on that.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your uh, thoughts as a you know, and your Perspective as a scientist. Someone was asking if you have any um, perspective or opinion or stories about near death, near death experience in relation to neuros, you know, brain health or neuroscience.
1: Well, there, I don't have any uh, near death experience myself personally, but there's a wonderful book by Eben Alexander. Uh, called Proof of Heaven. I think it's called Proof of Heaven. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful book that talks about a neurosurgeon's experience after having E. coli meningitis. And he had many signs and, and uh, symptoms of, of a near-death experience, and he gives a wonderful account of it. So that, that's a, that would be a good one for, for someone if they were interested in those types of experiences. I can tell you uh, that I've had very few of my patients um, that actually that have told me um, they're, they feel like they're going to die. And um, many of those people that have, that, have, that have told me that, they have died within hours of them telling me that. And so it, it's something that I truly believe that um, uh, there are some people who can sense that and they know. Uh, and um, I, I, I have no scientific explanation for that other than there's some things that we as scientists don't know yet.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, how, how did you feel or were you so excited when all the research came out, well, how the decades ago already talking about neuroplasticity? Because I still remember when I started nursing, they always you know we were taught that the brain will never regenerate.
1: That's really exciting literature, grace. And you know it's 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 interesting. I was asked by the hospital um, uh, maybe a few years ago to give a talk about uh, neural regeneration and um, how how to prevent dementia. And you know, I, I did a deep dive in the literature and um, Sanjay Gupta has a wonderful book out about this called Chasing Life. And uh, there are several others out there as well. But um, really the first thing I came to the conclusion as a neurosurgeon is the first thing we need to do to preserve our brain function is to stop insulting our brains. We're insulting our brains constantly with alcohol, with tobacco, with head injuries, with poor nutrition. Um, these are things that are completely reversible, easily changed. We need to stop doing that. The second thing we can do is we can strengthen our brain, just like we strengthen our muscles. You know, we see, I, I gave a talk to, um, the 10th special forces group at Fort Carson. And, um, and my son is a Marine. These, these young men who are serving our nation, they all spend two, three hours in the gym. And I say to them, do you spend two to three hours on your brain? because you need to be reading poetry and doing puzzles and learning new languages and strengthening all work at learning vocabulary and strengthening all those neural connections. Because similarly to the muscle contractions that you use to exercise, if you want to take a healthy brain into an, an event that might damage your brain, your best chance of coming out is something called cognitive reserve and cognitive reserve is your brain's ability to have alternate pathways, to solve a problem, to find a word, to think of a solution. And so cognitive reserve is something that we can build and prepare for. And cognitive reserve is also something that will help us fight dementia. Because think about it. If you have five different words for an object, the same object maybe, um, and you have a brain injury, you're more likely to still be able to have three words to name that object than if you just had one word to name that object so it's really important for us to be reading for us to be taking on new skills for us to be challenging ourselves in new ways at all times throughout our life and that's what builds that connectivity that's what you know helps the brain's neuroplasticity in these times of trauma so it's a very interesting field
0: <laughs> and 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 whenever you you mention about that connectivity and just like you know, you have that interest not just in the in in the brain surgery. It, I it's good to remember also for people that that also refers to connectivity again, connectivity with people. You know, not just with so everything is like, you know, it helps to connect with people, like-minded or not like-minded because you know even the not like-minded, just as you know when people are for or not. Four, uh, for or not for vaccine or whatever it is, you still be able to intentionally connect because that's really helpful for our brain. Yeah. Yeah. when uh, you when and uh, I do what you call quantum reflex analysis as that's my assessment tool. okay that's a semi kinesiological technique and the one of the first things that we uh, test is all around the brain. Oh, the head all the head points. because when any of the head point is off and then that will it kind of give us a signal that that has to be restored or else that weakness somewhere there reflects to a part of your body. So and and, and it's interesting because even in uh, the bioregenesis eternal life education, it's important that this point in the middle is in that's called the governing point which may be the same as the that that's the or acupuncture point and then the hypothalamus and the pituitary everything must be is strong and then kind of helps the rest of the body and and in relation to that and also in relation to the meditation when we were talking about is that these are also like the upper chakras so that connects us to the higher dimensions so it's beautiful when oh you know i i was really i'm happy that i could talk to you because you know the brain is a beautiful part of the body it <laughs> is. how about you tell tell us that you know that that when people say hey your stomach is the second brain what's your thought on that
1: well um I would have to disagree with you on the stomach being the second brain. I would say that there's one brain, and uh, it's a beautiful device, and we need to cherish it, and learn from it, and train it, and feed it, and 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 treat it nicely.
0: Well, how about this? This is also common, especially for boys. That the father will say, or I think I've done it also like I said, you know, take care of your don't be thinking with your lower brain, <laughs> Lower, <your> lower <laughs> think with your higher brain.
1: <laughs> well, yes, I would agree with that. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, what, what is the worst challenge that you've had as a neurosurgeon?
1: Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll finish with the story of uh, the young boy that I took care of in my book. Um, his name was Anthony. And I would say the worst thing is is the sadness that sometimes you have to experience. Um, I had a young boy, he was this beautiful, curly-headed kid, eight years old, and um, he came to my emergency room one day, uh, early on in my career, and he was falling. He worked at his dad's pizza parlor and was dropping the plates and was acting kind of drunk, and his dad brought him in, and sure enough, he had a brain tumor. And, um, you know, I saw this kid in the, in the ER, he was goofing off and he was this cute little kid and I became immediately attached to him. And I thought, heck, you know, I can, I can fix this guy. I'll take the tumor out and he'll be better and go, go off and live his life. And, um, I took him to the operating room the next day and, you know, I did his surgery and the surgery went perfectly. And, um, he went, we took him to the recovery room. He woke up perfectly. His post op scan looked great. The tumor was all gone. And I thought we were smooth sailing. But um, within 24 hours, he began having complication after complication after complication. He developed fluid buildup on the brain and he developed uh, infection. And then he developed uh, speech problems. And it just, at one after another, after another, after another. And you've seen this in the, in the ICU grace these people get one insult and then they get a second and a third and a fourth. And I just saw this little beautiful young boy, you know, slipping between our fingers as we, we lost him. Each one of these insults affected his brain function more and more. And at the end of about three months in the ICU, I finally, he stabilized and I finally was able to transfer him, uh, to the oncology and to get him planned for radiation and other treatments. And he left the hospital, but he never left my heart. Um, because I just, I saw this beautiful boy who was no longer going to ever be what he was before. And I thought his prognosis was going to be very poor that he was going to go through chemotherapy and radiation and not do well and ultimately pass on. And so he went off and went to his treatments and I couldn't let this little guy out of my head. I mean, I had an eight year old healthy boy. He was beautiful. Why was I so lucky to have a healthy boy and, and him and his mom and dad, not, 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 not lucky. So um, I, I ended up really took, I took, took it very hard. And I, I kept asking myself, what could I have done differently? Could I have picked up the fluid buildup earlier? Could I have picked up the infection earlier? Could I have done a better surgery, operated on him quicker? What could I possibly have done to help this boy? And I just, I kept just, I, I just kept asking myself, how capricious is this life where, I mean, how can, why does this happen? And this, why is this boy going to suffer like this? And I just, I, I kept saying to myself, I didn't go into neurosurgery to feel like this. I don't want to feel like this. God, I never imagined this. I thought I was going to be a doctor and save people. And here I am every night thinking about this little boy. And I, I, I had, was very fearful about it. And I, I just, I felt it was fearful, I guess, that I wasn't a good enough doctor. And I was fearful that, you know, I didn't do a good enough job. And I ended up giving up pediatric neurosurgery because I couldn't, I couldn't bear thinking about, you know, having another Anthony. I didn't want to have another Anthony. And I ultimately moved. We moved down to New Jersey and, um, fast forward 15 years, I started writing the book and I was like, Oh gosh, I, I've got to, um, I've I've got to write, I'm writing this book about fear. And I never even faced my fears with Anthony. I never even found out what happened to him. So I, I went back on Facebook and I looked up um, Anthony's pizza parlor, his mom and dad's pizza parlor. And sure enough, it's still there. It's in West Springfield. And um, I scrolled down on the pictures and all of a sudden I saw uh, Anthony's parents. And and then I scrolled down a little farther and I saw this 20-year-old young man in a wheelchair sitting with his parents. I'm like, oh, my God. Anthony's still alive. I couldn't believe it. So I, I called his dad and I told him, you know, I want to come up and see you. I'm writing this book and Anthony's been with me ever since. And, you know, I came up and I saw them and I sat down at the table and I saw Anthony and Anthony was there and he was with his family. And, you know, he, yes, he had, he had deficits, he had neurological deficits, but he was still with his family and he was part of his family. And, his mom and dad were there, and I told his mom and dad, you know, I, I wanted you to know, I, I couldn't tell you this then, but I want to tell you now, I I always thought that I'd let you down.
0: Oh, what a beautiful story. <laughs>
1: and the so parents, they, they jumped over the table and gave me this hug, and they said, what are you kidding me? You saved our boy. He's still with us. You're our hero, you know, and for 15, 18 years, I had been thinking I was a failure, and to them, I was their hero, you know, and I, on that day, I realized like I had been holding myself to this impossible standard, you know, and that, you know, I had done, I had done my job and, and he, and I did bring him back to his family and he was his dad's little helper still. And I got in my car that night and I thought, Oh my God, I'm so glad I took care of this kid, you know? And so it was one of those things where you, you, um, you know, you, you tell yourself a story that's the completely wrong story, and you don't hold yourself to these standards, and you don't forgive yourself for things that you had no control over. And and now to this day, I'm I'm he's I'm the he's my favorite patient of all time, you know. And I still talk with Anthony, and I talk with his family, and I would never trade that experience for for anything in the world to have done that. Um, but it's it's hard to go through those things you know but they're so sweet and so meaningful
0: I feel you I feel you and that's really those stories moments are the best payment for all the hard work like a doctor a nurse and you know when you meet someone you cared for so much and like, whoa, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, we can do this again in the future. And but, what, what, do you want any more information you want to share On you know, make an you. announcement?
1: Sure. I mean, um, if anyone wants to learn more or hear more stories, my website, markmclaughlinmd.com, you can go check it out. Um, My book is on Amazon. It's called Cognitive Dominance, A Brain Surgeon's Quest to Outthink Fear. And, you know, I'm on Instagram, Mark McLaughlin, MD. And also I am on YouTube, which I have a number of my videos to uh, share and tell stories about. So, and I'd love feedback. Um, My email is md at gmail.com. If you have any feedback, anything you want to share with me, I'd love to hear it. Um, I'm, I learn just as much from from people's comments and experiences as as uh, as I do when I when I give these talks. So thanks so much for the opportunity, Grace. It's great to see you again.
0: And and <laughs> uh, really privilege comment. to be
1: here. Thank, Thank you. you.
0: My, my honor and my joy as well. And uh, yes. And so for those of you there, thank you again for being with us. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are and keep yourself healthy. And I always want to say, don't let anything or anyone take the joy out of your life. Thank you, Mark.
1: My mm-hmm. pleasure. Bye-bye now. Thanks.